Welcome to Bed Crime Stories Podcast. I'm your host, T. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, bed crimers. As always, I wish you the best. To anyone new here, a warm welcome. Thank you for checking out my channel. Let me just ask that after listening to or watching this video, if you learned something or enjoyed it, please do me a favor and smash that like button. Now, let's dig in. On June 9th of 2023, defendant Brian Koberger, who is accused of committing the crime in Moscow, Idaho, appeared in court for a hearing on the gag order and whether or not cameras should be allowed in the courtroom. By the way, Koberger is currently presumed innocent, but he's also law enforcement's one and only suspect. As Koberger sat listening to the proceedings, his facial muscles appeared to tense up, and he had what looked like a nervous tick overtake his mouth and lips. To me, this spelled possible nervousness. I would think anyone in that position would be somewhat nervous. Koberger knows all eyes are on him. He's aware of all the interest in the case, and he's cognizant of the possibility that he could face the death penalty. That would make most of us nervous. Let's pretend for this video that Koberger is indeed the person who took the lives of Kaylee, Maddie, Zanna, and Ethan. If you, like me, interpreted his facial movements during that hearing as nervousness, you have to wonder if he was anxious when he allegedly broke into the house on King Road and began padding up that narrow staircase to the third floor where Kaylee and Maddie stayed. I mean, there's a big difference between sitting silent in a court hearing and breaking into a house where you're about to harm one or more human beings with a sharp object up close and personal. If this was the perpetrator's first crime of this extreme nature, you'd think he'd be out of his mind with anxiety. Just for the record, according to WebMD, sociopaths experience anxiety and find rage hard to control. So if the perpetrator is a sociopath, he can still feel anxiety. Most experts have said it would be highly unusual for a first-time perpetrator to do in four people with a sharp-edged object in a house where six people were home as he entered it. If it was Koberger in that white Hyundai Elantra that was observed on multiple security camera videos making three initial passes by the 1122 King Road residence in the early morning hours of November 13, 2022, was one of the reasons he passed by three times because he was nervous and unsure? Did he have to talk himself into following through with the crime? Or was it just that he wanted to be sure he knew who exactly was at home? If their bedroom lights were off, if the six inhabitants were likely asleep, only the perpetrator knows the answers. If he was nervous about setting the plan to do in other people in motion, then he would not be alone. It turns out that people who commit homicide are often nervous, and one of the ways in which they calm themselves down and lower their inhibitions prior to committing the crime is through alcohol and other drugs. According to a white paper on the ScienceDirect website titled Alcohol, Drugs, 
Drugs and Murder, a study of convicted homicide offenders. About 50% of the 1,887 convicted homicide offenders who were part of the study were under the influence of alcohol at the time of their crimes. They don't call alcohol liquid courage for no reason. And some offenders augmented the alcohol with other substances. This made me wonder if the person who took the lives of the four University of Idaho students was under the influence at the time of the crime. Did he need a confidence boost to carry out this incredibly vicious, up-close and personal attack? Could that further explain why the leather sheath belonging to the K-Bar was left behind on Maddie Mogan's bed? and why the masked man either saw Dylan Mortensen peeking out from her bedroom door and kept walking or failed to see her. Were his senses distorted in any way? On the one hand, it would appear he was in full control of his faculties, if you consider how quickly the police believe the crime went down. Twenty minutes tops. On the other hand, the crime seems sloppy. The leather sheath with touch DNA left behind at the crime scene was a major blunder. The videos that captured the white Elantra in the neighborhood around the time of the crime was definitely a mistake. The Elantra captured on video tearing out of Moscow at an excessive rate of speed when the last thing a perpetrator would want to do at that point is get pulled over by an officer. All of these are mistakes if you don't want to get caught. Serialists Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer, and John Wayne Gacy all needed a confidence booster and something that would make them uninhibited when they committed their crimes. And all three looked at alcohol for that. We know that Brian Koberger suffered an addiction to heroin in high school. We also know that he did visit bars from time to time. Remember, he went to the Seven Sirens Brewery in Pennsylvania on at least two occasions. I'm assuming he had a beer or two while there. So while Koberger is a vegan, I do not believe he abstains from alcohol. I mean, he does likely abstain right now because he's in the clink and may not have access unless he's made friends with an inmate who makes hooch, or what's called pruno. But in his former life before getting arrested, I believe Koberger drank the occasional beer. Let's talk first about Ted Bundy and how alcohol played an important role in the commission of his crimes. One of Bundy's few surviving victims, Carol Ann Durange, whom the serialist abducted from a Utah mall in November of 1974, recalled smelling alcohol on his breath. Yuck. To lure DeRoach out to the mall's parking lot and to his car, Bundy impersonated a police officer. He even had a badge to pull out when DeRoach asked for proof. Here's what she said about her experience with Bundy. Carol Ann Durant, and I was kidnapped by Ted Bundy in November of 1974. I had graduated from high school in the spring of 1974. I decided that I would just head over to the local shopping mall, which was only a couple miles from my house. I walked through the mall and was looking in the bookstore window. And a man had come up to me and introduced himself as a police officer. He said his name was Officer Roseland and told me that they had caught someone trying to break into my car. So he asked me if I wanted to go out to my car with him and see if anything was gone. 
We were at the car, I opened the door, and we were looking in. I could see nothing was gone. And that's when he said, well, uh, we have the suspect that was trying to break in your car, the substation in the mall. Do you want to, do you have time? Do you want to go over there and fill out a complaint? And I said, I said, sure, I'll do that. So we walked across the street from the mall to another building, and it was back of a laundromat and tried to open the door like it was the substation. And of course it was locked and said, well, they must have taken him down to the police station. He's not here. And it's that point that I think I could smell alcohol in his breath a little bit. And I said, can I seek some kind of ID? And he flipped open his wallet and he had a badge. And I said, oh, okay. So we walked over on the side of the road and he had a Volkswagen parked there, which I thought was kind of odd, but I thought, oh, he's an undercover cop. We were almost halfway to the police station. All of a sudden, he just jerked the car over and pulled over up on the curb. Then I knew something was wrong. And I started screaming, what are you doing? What are you doing? This isn't the police station. Why are you stopping? What's going on? I was in sheer panic, and he was trying to grab my hands. He got a handcuff on one of my wrists. We were struggling. He never got it on the other wrist. I was punching and screaming and just fighting. Durant was one of the lucky ones. She got out of Bundy's Volkswagen. As Bundy fought with her outside the car, miraculously, the car of Wilbur and Mary Walsh suddenly approached. Durant saw the chance to escape. She broke away and leapt into the passing vehicle. And they believed her because Bundy's handcuffs were still dangling from her wrist. Bundy also admitted to being so inebriated during the attack of college student Georgianne Hawkins that he didn't notice her earrings and one shoe had fallen off. The day after he harmed Hawkins, he visited her body, and that's when he noticed the missing earrings and shoe. He then drove to the parking lot from which he'd abducted her to look for those items. According to Bundy, alcohol lowered his inhibitions and gave him the courage to commit his crimes. For him, alcohol was basically another tool in his kill kit, along with handcuffs, an ice pick, a crowbar, a box of large green plastic bags, a flashlight, gloves, a ski mask, and another mask made from nylons. Bundy's libations of choice, by the way, were Mickey's Big Mouth Malt Liquor and Red Wine, if he was having a nice meal. A census taker once tried to test me. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. Serialist Jeffrey Dahmer of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, my hometown, also looked to booze when committing his crimes. According to his psychiatrist, Dr. Park Dietz, Dahmer didn't really want to do people in. What he really wanted was to pick up a cute guy and keep him at his apartment for a very long time and get him to do whatever he wanted him to. But when that wasn't in the cards, he turned to luring them to his apartment and then doing them in there. In this way, he could keep them forever. He even looked into freeze-drying one of his victims, but abandoned the idea when he found out that the equipment to do this would cost $30,000. Dr. Dietz testified at 
Dahmer's trial that his patient drank alcohol to overcome his distaste for the act of taking lives. Dr. Dietz said Dahmer suffered from alcoholism. By the way, Bundy did as well. Dietz is quoted as saying he had to take this additional step to overcome his natural inhibition against the killing. End quote. Dahmer's M.O. was to head to his local bars to trawl for victims. His drinks of choice, by the way, were rum and coke and beer. Of course, beer. He lived in Milwaukee, where the air is filled with the scent of hops on any given day, as well as chocolate from the Ambrosia factory where Dahmer worked. His favorite brands were Miller and Pabst Blue Ribbon, just like my grandmother. Yeah, she liked beer. John Wayne Gacy, the killer clown, was also known to drink a lot of booze. Gacy would often drink himself into such a stupor that after a whole bottle of J&B whiskey, he'd black out and would later claim to not remember what he'd done to his many victims. In the case out of Moscow, Idaho, we don't know if the perpetrator was at all under the influence I would bet he was to some degree, not soused, obviously, but perhaps feeling a tad loose. But forget about him. What I hope is that the victims were somewhat intoxicated so that they maybe didn't have full awareness of what was happening to them. One can always hope. Until the next time on Bed Crime Stories, if you enjoyed this, smash that like button, subscribe to my channel, leave me a comment, share my content far and wide, ask your friends and family to subscribe, and I'll see you next time. But I don't think Mr. Dahmer has an antisocial personality disorder. You will speak to some of his traits, however, personality traits later on in your conclusionary remarks that affected and interplaced with the paraphilia. Is that correct? Probably. What role does alcohol play in Mr. Dahmer's situation, and how did that interface with his paraphilia and with his character? Well, in Mr. Dahmer's case, his drinking was very important in understanding the crimes with which he's charged. The the way that paraphilic offenders who aren't character disordered get to be offenders instead of law-abiding people is often because of substance abuse. In other words, because the paraphilia doesn't cause anyone to commit a crime, we have to ask ourselves, how does, why is it some paraphiles commit crimes? Well, some do because they're bad people. They have an antisocial personality disorder and they don't care about anyone else, so they just do it. Some do because they're alcoholic and they lower their inhibitions with drinking and then do these things they want to do. Others for other drugs or for other personality disorders. But it's not because of the paraphilia. It's because of these other problems that lower their inhibitions or that cause them not to have any inhibitions in the first place that they'll commit the crimes merely to satisfy themselves sexually. In Mr. Dahmer's case, I think the key element as to why uh, he did not confine himself to fantasy and masturbation is that he was also drinking very heavily. Because of his alcohol abuse, he was often lowering his inhibitions. And in that state, would find it 
capable to engage in a series of things that without drinking were very difficult for him. Uh, to begin with, Mr. Dahmer is not a particularly extroverted person. He can speak comfortably to people. He's not so inhibited from social contact that it makes him anxious just to have a conversation. He can have carry on normal conversations with, with, with anyone and, and be polite and have no problem with that. But he was a private person and not very outgoing, particularly as he was engaging in um, antisocial behavior, withdrew from other people. He saw the turning point as the Hicks homicide, I think, when he began to drink very heavily and withdraw from other people. And so from right after high school on, he had been a heavy drinker much of the time and had had few, if any, close friends. Now, because he had few or no close friends after high school, it was a difficult thing for Mr. Dahmer to go meet someone to develop a sexual relationship. And part of the reason he would drink on weekends was to be able to work up the courage to go meet someone in the same way that, that heterosexual men will sometimes go to a bar and have a few drinks before they would approach a woman because they want to overcome some of this inhibition. It's, it's the same here. But another reason he would drink is that when he was alone with those whom he meant to harm, he would have inhibitions against the killing that he would need to drink to overcome. Now, that's because Mr. Dahmer doesn't have any paraphilia about killing people. He never did. He has paraphilias about doing gentle things with people and, and foreplay-like things with them. And I think he has a paraphilia about looking at viscera. But killing people is not a paraphilia for him. And nor is the actual dismemberment or disposal of corpses sexually appealing to him. Those were two things that he particularly disliked. He didn't like to kill, and he didn't like to dismember. Though there was a piece of the mutilation that he liked, which is when you look at the abdomen. But the rest of it was hard work, and some of it absolutely repulsive to him, just as it would be to anyone, until he desensitized himself by doing it so often that it was just a dirty job 